This is a Bournemouth University podcast. As Brexit rumbles on, we speak to an expert in political communication to try to understand how we got to where we are and where we go from here. So I'm here with Dr Darren Lilliker, um, one of our associate professors here at BU. Uh, and Darren is an expert in political communication. Um, and hopefully he's going to talk to us a little bit about Brexit and particularly how we got to the situation we find ourselves in today. Um, so... As we know, Darren, things are changing really, really quickly, Mm -hmm. by the minute, possibly by the second. Um, And we were supposed to exit the European Union on this Friday coming Mm -hmm. up. That doesn't look very likely anymore. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about where we are now, as far as as you're concerned, um, and how we got here? Well, um, where are we now? Um, Really, we don't know at the moment. So so this is... um, yeah, the day after government is kind of no longer in control of the parliamentary agenda and the backbenchers can do basically what they like with the discussion time. Um, and hopefully they can find some solutions to the problem that no one else seems to be able to solve, um, which is what kind of agreement Britain wants in, in leaving or if we want to leave at all. So... It, it's really no clearer that it was on the day after we left, or after the vote. It was, where are we now? <laughs> so how did this happen? How do we get to how far we are down the line, as close to as leaving as we mm-hmm. are, without any clearer picture? Well, really, um, I, I, I blame the government in in many ways for all of it from the start, that the... The referendum itself, there was no plan for leaving. That that any government that that is it has a plan like that would normally go through testing scenarios. Can we do this? Can we cope if this goes against us? And there was no plan for that. There was no, it, well, there's no indication there was any thinking whatsoever about what would happen next. So. The referendum happened. They didn't really understand public opinion. And and there's been a lot of work showing public attitudes to the EU and why a lot of people voted to leave. So they could have got an indication that there was a problem if they'd looked at the data. Um, And then we had Cameron leaving. We had a delay while Theresa May became Prime Minister. We then had another delay because she called the general election when she didn't need to. Um, and then we've had this problem ever since of a, a government that doesn't have a majority. And the complexity then, alongside all of that, of negotiating with 27 other countries. It, it's, this idea of the EU as a monolith is, is a myth. It, doesn't, it isn't a, a monolith. It's 27 countries. So unless you have all those countries can find something they can agree to, then you can't get an agreement. So what she has is is this kind of withdrawal plan, which is probably the best that the EU really want to give because they don't want other countries to leave. That's the purpose of the EU, is, is growing, not shrinking. So, yeah, it, it, all of that has, has led us to where we are and, and a plan that really no one agrees with. And Parliament itself is probably... 60-70% in favour of remaining in the 
in the EU. But they haven't got the guts to say it unless they're Liberal Democrats or SNP, because they stand on that and they, they know who they represent. But the other two parties don't say, we shouldn't leave, it's a bad idea, because they've all pledged to honour the outcome of the referendum. Um, so, yeah, so no one's really happy with it. Even the public aren't happy with it. Um, and there's, there's a, a great art, article by John Curtis this morning, um, it's on the BBC News site, but you know, looking at public attitudes and, and they're, they're really, really dissatisfied with the way the government's handling it, but also the way that Jeremy Corbyn is handling it. And so we're in a bit of a mess, really. <laughs> to say the least. Um, is there anything you think particularly that either leader of um, the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May, could have done differently or do differently going forward that might improve things? I think one of the big sticking points from the start has been the red lines that Theresa May imposed and also Jeremy Corbyn's silence on the EU. So in a way, she did all the talking and setting out the strategy and he did nothing. And it would have been much better if a cross-section of parties, and that includes the SNP and the Liberal Democrats and other parties, had got together and said, what is going to satisfy 90-odd percent of the people? So there's going to be some people that are never satisfied, but you know, as long as they're not harmed, that's fine. But something that would bring together the people who were fervent leavers and the fervent remainers and so what would be the the kind of proposal that would bring all this together and not upset conditions in Ireland and really that I think that first four or five months that were wasted with leadership challenges and elections that would have been the time to bring all those people together and say what sort of things should be the red lines not what the Brexiteers' red lines are, but what are the red lines that, that we think will bring people together? And I think that's the thing that was needed. And it just seems to be constantly polarising. And, and all of these debates, uh, well, these votes in Parliament, the, the High Court judgment, all these things have just pulled people apart and, and you know, calling people traitors on the front of the Daily Mail and things like that. It's just contributed to this very negative environment. Whereas... You know, a bigger national conversation that was reasonable would have been far better, but we didn't. We didn't really have that. No, we did not. Um, what do you think? What do you see happening in the next couple of days with uh, the backbenchers having a bit more say now? How do you think the conversation might shift? Well, I can see there being some pretty acrimonious debates in Parliament. Um, because there are some very loud voices, particularly on the Brexit side, that, that, that they, the problem is they don't seem to have any actual solutions to what they want unless we leave with nothing, and which they're not really that keen on either. So the hope is that the moderate voices, and ranging from people like Ken Clark and, and Dominic Grieve through to Tripper and Mono and others on the well, not along with the Labour benches, but from that side of the house, if you like, um, can actually think of, you know, actually get together and say, well, OK, you know, we're, you know, we're on different sides of this, but we can pull together something. But then it's down to who's going to take that back to the European Union and say, is this acceptable? And 
can we build something around the Norway model um, that incorporates Norway, uh, sorry, incorporates the Ireland problem, um, or Canada that incorporates Ireland and not having that because of the customs union problem. Um, but if not, well, I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen, that, that either we extend or we withdraw Article 50 and say it's a bad idea. That's really the only options, is either we just leave or we don't. Because the deals that seem to be talked about, no one seems to want. Mm. <laughs> Do you think uh, revoking Article 50 is likely at this point? I mean, I know there's been this uh, huge push on this petition. Um, I think it was five million signatures now. Do you think that's likely? Um, it would be it would be dangerous to do it because there was five million signatories, there was a million or so on the streets of London um, tied to the same thing. But what will happen when, if that happens, how many people will come to the streets then? And there seems to be a very nasty fringe to leave. Um that seem happy to threaten people with all sorts on Twitter, etc. You know, what happens if they come to the streets? And that's that's something that's that's worrying about if they don't feel they get what they want. I don't think they will get what they want, but if they don't feel in any way appeased, if they feel mm. that everything's gone against them, what will they do? But if Parliament feels that leaving with no deal at all is just too dangerous then that's possibly an alternative unless they can have another long extension and then we negotiate we renegotiate something that is based on some on, on a deal that parliament will agree to um but that would also then mean we have to have european parliamentary elections which would be a little bit of a joke um if we are leaving um yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's unlikely, but it, it may be the only thing they can agree on to some extent or, or enough people can agree on. Um, but it's it's difficult to imagine the circumstances where Parliament would think that's a good idea. Mm. So what do you think is more likely? No deal or revoking? The way things are looking at the moment, it's probably more likely no deal. Um, which is is very very worrying because really we don't know what's going to happen. It's it's unravelling so much of uh, well forty years of being embedded with an institution and then being outside of it, and we really don't know what preparations are in place and what delays will happen as a result of that. And and for anybody who's travelling at some point in time in April, um, well, can we travel? Can we get back? Well. You know, will planes? You know, do planes have the right to fly in our airspace? All of these questions, and I don't know what's being done behind the scenes. I think that's part of the problem. Um, but in the same way as Article Fifty, I don't think Parliament will want to revoke it. I also don't think there's there's. Well, I think it's a very small number of parliamentarians that really want no deal, and so. Yeah, we're in this position where these are the two kind of alternatives, but 
no one really wants them. They're not really sure the European Union wants no deal either. And many of the member states definitely don't. So will they then say, well, no, it can't happen. We've got to give more time. It's, it's you know, so it, I guess it just depends. If the debates can come to something that looks like there's an agreement, maybe the European Union will look at it and say, well, OK, if you can do that and and we can discuss that, then maybe we can go for longer extension and, you know, do some sort of fudge around the European parliamentary elections where I mean, the easiest thing would just be for people to just retain their seats. There's been a lot of talk in the newspapers um, and on social media about Theresa May's uh, ability to continue leading uh, this whole process and the country um, and her own political party for that matter. Do you think she'll have to step down at some point. How long can you see her remaining where she is? I think if I was, if I was her, I'd want to step down. <laughs> um, I, I, I think she will have to step down. I think, in in a way, uh, and, and it was... Um, I can't remember the name of it. Somebody wrote about um, Teflon and Velcro leaders, whereas was Teflon... They can get away with anything, and nothing, no, no, nothing sticks to them. And Velcro, everything sticks. And she is one of those. And she just become the kind of lightning conductor for everything that goes wrong with Brexit. And I think what she's generally tried to do is unite her party, of to try to manage the factions between in the party. But it's been so inwardly focused, it can't achieve anything outside the party because. It, it's kind of leaning too much towards the Brexiteers. So that's why, why she is where she is. No one's really happy with her. The Brexiteers don't think she's tough enough. The ones who want to remain think she's, she's too tied to that side. So she's probably lost her position in the party. And I, I think in the country she's just lost credibility. Um, and I think the newspapers are actually part of that. If it's, it's become very personalised and very, it, it's almost part of the narrative that comes out of the general election, that she failed to win the general election, and then she's failed in the negotiation. So she's, there's this narrative of failure, and it's just carrying on with her until she goes. Um, and, and really, if this, it, unless this had been a, a massive success and she got this wonderful deal, which I can't imagine what that would actually look like, then she'd probably still been a failure anyway. Mm-hmm. Kind of lose-lose situations for her. Yeah, I, I, I think the general election was a mistake. It, it was because of the outcome. She didn't. It wasn't run very well for her, and it wasn't. She wasn't the person to to really lead it in the way that it needed to, needed to be led, and the outcome was just such a disaster for her that it was just it, it kind of killed her leadership off. Well, going back to that, then why why do you think she called that general election in the first place? Simply, she wanted a larger majority and she looked at the opinion polls and she believed that she could win it. And the, the trouble with opinion polls is that they measure opinion at a time. And you can't then say, right, this campaign will run and public opinion will stay the same. And it, it didn't, or the people who were polled, you know, aren't fully representative of who voted and... A lot of young people voted, 
They seem to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, um, but not in quite large numbers as people have said. But there was that that swing to Labour in many places, and and you know it was a matter of two three hundred votes in certain places that if either party had won them, the whole situation would have been different. But it isn't. There we go. Thank you, Dan. Is there anything more you want to say on this? Apart from help, no. (laughs) You can find more academic Brexit perspectives on our website, www.bournemouth.ac.uk.